Hi, it's Carolyn. In this episode of Racehorses, etc., Jody Alexander joins us. Jody's a humble horseman who knows the horses and the land like it was bred into him, because it was. His title of farm manager barely does him justice, as like most horsemen in this role, he's the backbone of the breeding operation. Jody ran Mount Brilliant Farm in Lexington for 23 years, and now Sumaya Farms, and stands by the mantra that you only get out of the horse what you put into the soil. And as we'll find out, he's not just talking about fertilizer. Stay tuned for three generations of insight into running a world-class breeding operation. This is Racehorses Etc., the podcast celebrating horsemanship. I'm Carolyn Conley. I've covered horse racing on TV for over a decade, exercised some of the best horses in the world, and represented top jockeys. Here, I speak to icons and everyday racing folks to deepen our understanding of horsemanship. Jody Alexander, welcome to Racehorses Etc. It's such an honor to have you here. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be on your show. Thank you so much. You are a third-generation horseman here in the bluegrass. Your grandfather was a stallion manager for Green Tree. Do you remember a time in your life without horses? No, actually no, except when I was in the service uh, in the Army. Um, and even then, I was I asked my parents to just send me pictures of the horses we were selling at Saratoga. So um, I'd say my whole life has been around horses. and most of my family also. The horse business is a hard life. Um, I think it got in my blood when I was young. I hate to, I mean, that sounds so cliche, but it, it's it's true. There's something about horses that fulfill you. Um, it's true. I, I don't know what else I would do. Tell me about your grandfather. Where did you grow up and what was he doing when you were born? I don't remember my grandfather that much um, until I was at Bwamazin Farm. My father took the uh, yearly manager job. You know, he was a stud man at uh, Green Tree Farm and actually exercised the stallions, rode them um, for exercise. Um, and my father and my two uncles also grew up on Green Tree Farm. Uh, that's basically where all of them started, even my father's cousin, Perry. Um, was also his father, Stanley, was a broodmare manager at at Green Tree Farm. So the whole family kind of started out from Green Tree. Now it's all part of Gainesway. I think Graham Beck bought the Green Tree and then incorporated that with, then bought Gainesway, incorporated the two together. And now his son, Anthony Beck, uh, runs it. It's a beautiful farm, beautiful farm. Yes, it is. I spent some oh. time over there taking a look at Tappet and some of the other yeah. stallions. Recently. Well, you should have them give you a little uh, tour around the back part through all the yearling barns over on the old green tree part. It's woods. It's just lovely, perfect setting for a farm. And you talk about a perfect setting for a farm. You know all about that. Your career as a farm manager has spanned several different farms, and maybe one of the most prominent was Mount Brilliant Farm here in Lexington. Um, that was a cattle farm. It was not a thoroughbred farm when you were brought on to organize and run it. Uh, what did you see in that land before you turned it into a thoroughbred farm? Well, first we went over and the most important thing was the soils. And we checked out to see the type of soils that we had. So it was 
there's a band of Maury loam soil that goes through the area from Gainesway, Spinthrift, um, Mount Brilliant, and continues on um, across uh, the southern part, eastern part of uh, Fayette County. There's ter- terrific land over in that area. So we knew it was a good good soil for raising horses. It also had a little bit of roll to the land, um, which we thought was important for um, you know, exercising, building up the horses. Um, not everything was flat. And with that, it gave us the idea that we could put our barns on top of the hills at higher elevation so we could get better uh, wind flow, air movement. And at the same time, you get a lot of rain, all the water drains away from the barn. It's just uh, trying to analyze the farm that you have and try to position your barns and your fields appropriately. We had a tremendous amount of road frontage there. It went from Russell Cave to all the way Huffman Mill. Um, so it was important for us to try to isolate the horses, the mares and foals, toward more toward the interior. And also our yearlings, if you're selling colts and you've got them in small paddocks, you don't want them out next to the road where, you know, there's car backfires or something that scares them and they've got a small paddock and they run through the fence. So you try to move those paddocks more toward the interior, put your big rolling fields out toward the roadside. So if there's something that does scare the horse or something happens, you know, they've got enough room to get away without injuring themselves. It's kind of things like that. Now, when you say we, you're talking about Mr. Goodman. Um, he and yes. his family own the farm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Greg Goodman and I sat down with uh, is an architect, Joe Clark, and we expressed everything that we wanted, how many head we were planning on having there on the farm, which land acreage is, is so important. Um, I think you almost need for year-round at least five acres per horse, and that's difficult with some of these smaller farms. Um, but uh, you only get out of the horse what you put into the soil. I mean, after so many years, if you don't get that off that land, let that land rest and revitalize itself, it uh, it just I think it damages some of your soil. They have to replenish it. So that was another thing. We constantly we started out with four hundred acres, then we increased in size. We bought Faraway Farm, which was adjoining property where actually a man of war barn was and where he stood and uh, um, finally his children got into polo so we bought another 400 acres which was Poplar Hill Farm developed that um, more in a different style for the polo horses Um, they don't need quite the land space that the um, thoroughbreds do and that's the one thing that we were able to do We'd run our horses through the falling barn, and after we fold everything, we'd move them out, shut that down, and let all that land, um, you know, we'd um, fertilize it. Um, we'd apply weed killer um, and then let it set so it would be ready for the coming next coming season. Because it gets so hard, hits so hard when you have a, a lot of mares and foals on it at one, at one time. If you got a 20-stall falling barn, it's a little difficult. and you know, you're shifting, you'll have one field with mares that haven't folded, and then you'll have other fields with mares that have already folded, you know. And then we tried to set up enough paddocks around those 
um, never liked to really turn out foals into a huge field until they were like 30 days of age, just for let their bones and ankles set a little bit. Um, I remember seeing a horse once turn the mare and foal out in a big field and she tore across the field and the foal was struggling to keep up and fractured his sesamoids. And it's just so easy when they're that young to let them strengthen up, keep them in a small paddock, introduce them to another mare and foal so they learn how to stay away from, you know, other mares and then introduce them into a big field where the herd is after that. So it's kind of, it all goes into a planning stage also when you're trying to develop your farm. We would put smaller round paddocks, we call foaling paddocks for the firstborns, um, and leave them in there a couple of days. Maybe longer if confirmationally they had some defects, you know, or way down in their pasterns or um, really offset. We had to worry about too much exercise, um, things like that. And then after that, we would put them in a bigger paddock with another mare and foe and then introduce them along. What part of diet played into development of these young horses? And how did you have to adjust diets or maybe locations accordingly? Well, the younger foals, you know, it's difficult. Um, in Virginia, we used to, after the foals got some size and they were having their heads in the feed tubs, you know, we would put a tub in the back of the stall and tie the mares up and let the foals eat. Um, it becomes labor intensive. You have to have somebody in your barns all the time if you're tying the mares up, you know, watching the foals. Uh, a lot of farms, you know, you bring them in, you feed them, you have to move on to the next barn, you know. So um, we used to just feed a little bit more and let the foals eat with the mares until we saw that the mares were kind of pushing them away. Uh, and then we started feeding in the in the process that we do now. Um, we try to leave them out as long as we can during the day while it's still cool. And uh, the foals will come in. Once they start being turned out at night, they come in for a couple of hours. We'll pick feet, let them eat, introduce them to their own feed. Um, it was usually like a 14%, just like the mares were getting. Um, and it was a pelleted feed. I switched from uh, sweet feed, which I grew up with in Virginia, and we actually made our own feed. We're using oats, barley, bran, corn, and blackstrap molasses and we we crimp our own oats and then have a big uh barrel and mix it by hand and that and then twice a week we feed it out and then uh we realized the feed mill could do our our own formula same and deliver it twice a week so i always use sweet feed and then when I got here we had it was a private farm in virginia with mrs augustus Keswick stables but when i got to um, Darby Dan, you had so many horses, it became a problem with the feed, feeding out. Sometimes we have feed in the field. Sweet feed, you know, you put that in a tub in the field. First thing they do is kick the tub, turn it over, and it's it's all out. And um, I, I also noticed in the mare's piles or manure, you'd see a lot of whole oats that were actually passing through the mares that weren't broken down. So um, we went with a chelated pellet 
14% pellet and a big pellet. Uh, a lot of people think foals will get will choke on a big pellet, but they actually, mares and foals have to masticate a little bit more and it makes it slow the process down. I like those big pellets in the fields because when they do kick over the tub, yes, they're, they they're hold right, together a lot better. There's less waste. Um, a lot of times I was using 12% pellets, but then I upped it up to 14% pellet, talking to the feed companies and deciding which would be a all, better all-around pellet so we wouldn't have to have so many different feeds. With labor, you know, you always worry about if they're getting the right feeds, and that labor is an important part of, of these horses. Speaking of labor, I've talked to some of the people you've worked with in the past, Maggie being one of them. She's over at Mount Brilliant. And I feel like you have a lot of dedicated people that will continue to be loyal to you, you know, throughout the ages. And how do you find people that love horses and will go that extra mile to really care for them and look after them with that little extra bit? Yeah, I think that comes with management. Um, You start learning your personnel. You treat your personnel right, and um, they respect you more if you respect them. Um, there's a lot of managers that don't show, and I'm not knocking anybody, but that don't show respect to the employees that they have. And those employees are just working for a paycheck. You know, the horses mean nothing to them. And it, you see the ones that will go the extra mile just by, you know, day-to-day interaction with them. You can tell. And those are the ones that you want to take care of and and help along, and you know you treat them right, and they'll they'll do anything in the world for you. So that's kind of the way the way that I've come over the years, you know. And it's just a matter of watching, watching, and you can see a guy lead a horse, and a good guy. You look at him, and you'll see the him looking at the legs on the horse and the eyes before you ever get to it. I look at every horse every day coming in uh that's part of our routine um and we all start and i teach the guys when they first come toward you you look at their eyes and their head make sure you know they're no eye problems and then you start their feet and work your way up and then you start noticing the guys going through the same routine that you've taught them and um a lot of times they'll find things before you even get to them so um there's guys that are willing to learn and um those are the ones that you really want to keep around. And you said respect. It's interesting. Uh, I can't remember who told me this, but it was the old saying, like, if you yell at the employee, then the employee goes home and <laughs> yells at their kid and the kid goes over and kicks the dog. Yeah, that's exactly so it right. It kind of trickles um, down to the horses. You know, I wouldn't say the thoroughbred business when I was young was the highest paying job around. Um, so your manual labor, your guys that you hired, your grooms, which is way I came up. Um, they're not the most highly educated, but there were a lot of guys who, same as me, grew up on the farm and just got into their blood and they wanted to keep continuing the horses. In all honesty, a lot of it my age was poor whites um, and Afro-Americans. And um, some of the best grooms that I've met were Afro-Americans. We had a, a gentleman that... Um, Darby Dan Farm, Floyd Williams, who took care of the stallions. That I'd love to go down and sit on the on the tack box with him in the afternoons out in front of the stud barn, and he would tell me stories and about 
40, 60, 80 million dollar stallions that he took care of over the years, you know, and his responsibility. And you're like, I actually talked to a guy once about writing a book about those old stallion grooms because there were so many good ones that had so many stories and it never came about, you know. But he'd also, he'd elbow me and say, you know, over in the open down in there, if you reach down in there, you might find a little something you want to take a nip of, you know. <laughs> those 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 guys were unbelievable, and I learned so much from them, and not just about the horses, but also about their life and, and the stories that they had with the horses. So, what was your favorite story that Floyd told you? Well, you know, Rebo Rebo was a Derby Dan, and he was he was a crazy horse. They um. They had he had solid fencing in his paddock all the way up. Um, probably I'd say eight foot high at least. And um he would jump up and get his front feet over and try still try to climb out of it. They built uh a shed in the upper right hand paddock, um, which when I was there, Roberto and his majesty shared the little common shed, but they built it for Roberto for him to get out of the sun. And he went in there and tore it apart, kicking and everything. They had to close it up and never was back in there again. He would try to savage the trees in the paddock. And I remember the, the Olin Gentry was the manager back in and he put cinders around the tree and had the blacksmith trim Rebo short. So he'd be tender-footed so he wouldn't be able to get to the tree because he tried to savage the tree and climb it. So, um, those were some of the stories. Uh, he told me that, you know, they allowed uh, these little tour vans to come in to look at the stallions, you know, people who were interested in horses and then heard about these stallions and um, wanted to come and see them. So, Floyd said there's one day it was Graustark. Graustark was a little mally, you know, he wasn't mean, but he was a little mally. Roberto we kept in the lower field so nobody could actually go down and be around him. So he told the guy not to get too close to Graustark and he says the guy had a tie on, he said, Oh, I've been around horses all my life and he reached out to pat him and he grabbed him by his necktie and was choking him you know he pulled back and the guy was choking and floyd had to take his knife and cut the guy's tie off <laughs> in order to save the guy and it was the same thing a lady wanted to have a picture made and she had one of those big i think they call them beehive hairdos back then and he reached and grabbed her and was trying to pull her over the the fence you know it's that was grouse star grouse star yeah wow yeah. <laughs> my goodness roberto was the Tougher stallion when I was there, but uh, the, most of the stories were Floyd would tell me about, were about Rebo and how wild he was. They put cameras in his barn. Mister Gentry decided he wanted cameras in all the stallion barns, and Robert and Rebo's stall. And Rebo came in the stall and he looked and saw the camera, and he went berserk, was trying to savage the camera, so they had to take it back out of the stall. He was a wild horse. <laughs> He's speaking for a lot of us right now with cameras yeah. everywhere, I think. Yeah, yeah. How about so that? So those are some of the stories. But uh, I was just amazed that 
uh, the stallions that Floyd took care of. And uh, when you think how valuable a commodity he was to that farm, you know, what did um, you see him? What did you see him do with a horse? What What did you notice when he was working with him? Well, I think the horses trusted him. Um, they never seemed to bother him when he was, because he would always bring the stallion to the shed when we were getting ready to breed, you know. Um, and he knew him so well that he'd just say, you know, he'd push her head away, get away, get away, you know, and they never bothered him. And then we had another gentleman there, Robert Owsley, and if Floyd was off, he'd bring the stallions to the shed and they would eat him up. I mean, it's just like they knew Floyd and they were calm around him and he had a calming effect to him. Um, I never see him. I never saw him really hit on a horse, um, but he could straighten him up without, you know, um, actually beating on him. I knew, I remember a horse that was at a farm and it got relocated. The, the farm manager went, left and went to another farm, got the syndicate, syndicate to move the stallion with him. And when he got to that farm, he went berserk. They, and the guy that used to bring him to the shed could hold him with just a loose shank by the time that, and I think they actually tried to reprimand him by beating him into submission. Well, the next time I saw him, they had a, a man on each side of the, with a shank, two men bringing him to the shed. And he was, was crazy. They ruined the horse. And it's, uh, but Floyd loved what he do and he with what he did and he knew how to get along with them. And that's important also, I think. Horses trust, you know. Mm-hmm. The gentleman that I work for now, Mr. Abigazali, his love for horses is, I've never met a gentleman with that type of love for horses. He said, you know, God put horses on earth for us to enjoy and we need to take care of them. Um, and he means that. It's a, uh, it's a gift that he thinks he has this farm, actually. so That's beautiful. Those are the type of people that are good for the business, I think. Well, let's yeah. get to Osama Abu Ghazali in a few minutes. Um, I want okay. to know more about his Sumaya farm. But before we leave the topic of Mount Brilliant, tell me about laying out the paddocks. How important is uh, rounded corners, simple things like that on a farm? Oh, I think, uh, especially in your in your yearling paddocks, uh, if you're doing, it depends on what you're laying the farm out for. Um, if you're selling yearlings and you're going to need to separate your colts, then you're going to go to a smaller paddocks, maybe acre, acre and a half paddocks. Um, and you don't necessarily have to make them square. Uh, I know when we laid out Mount Brilliant, we had a lot of those were kidney shaped. And the reason we, turned him that way was to try to get as many gates around the barn as we as we could so when you're leading the horses out you don't have as far to walk the horses now that's doesn't seem like much but when you've got 14 coats that you're turning out every night for the sales and they're going to separate paddocks you know it takes forever to get that done um at that point when you're that close to the sale you don't want anything to happen to these horses. You don't want to see them get loose, either turn it out or bring it in. As far as um, handling them and walking with them, 
that's part of the plan that you do when you're prepping the horses. You know, you teach them how to walk on out. You hand walk them in the in the fields. But for turnout, you know, they've been up all day, pent up in the stall, and it's cooler air in the nighttime. You know, you we usually wait till the sun starts setting. And it's not as powerful, so they don't uh, get sunburned hair. So they're they're ready to go out and. Um, that's the last thing you want to do is see a horse hurt because it gets gets loose. Now, the fillies are different. You know, they're in the bigger paddock. I, I try to position a yearling colt barn more toward the interior, like I was saying, so you wouldn't have uh, paddocks out close to the road. Uh, it's more quiet on there when you're prepping. Um, but we would take all the corners out, absolutely. And then configure them to try to try to place as many gates to the entrances to the paddocks around the barn itself as we could. Uh, the Philly barns are different. Those might be bigger fields. You might have a couple of paddocks, you know, if you had something that was injured or you had to re- reduce their exercise. But the Phillies would all go out together. If you were breeding these horses and raising them to race, then the colts could all go out in a, a big field together we never separated colts um when i first came to samaya when we were um raising these to race you know they take the aggression out on each other you know they might come in with a few beats and bangs um but it makes them a tougher horse however if you were sales prep you don't want those little knots and beats and bangs on them so it makes a difference um and that raises the whole question of is raising to sell really helping our breed when we're looking at not allowing horses to get rough and develop and endure some of the bumps and bruises that come with running and building bone. And what's your thoughts on that? Well, if I was raising them to race, they'd come in for two hours a day, eat, you know, I would doctor them, pick their feet, groom them a little bit. And the other 22 hours, they'd be outside uh, together. Right. Um, but I think because the product you're trying to produce, you know, you leave them up all day, uh, their exercise is limited. You force the exercise um, to compensate for that, you know, with a with a walker, not only hand walking, but, you know, putting them on the walker. Um, and I think you're pushing these horses probably more so uh, to get them to a certain sale than you normally would. You know, I don't think it's the best thing, but I think it's what you have to do in order to get that product to the sale. Right. Right. Let's talk about the farm itself in that um, the Man of War barn was acquired along the way. What did you I, I had a chance to look at it. It's just this beautiful old wood barn with the high ceilings and light coming in from up high um, old wood barn. How did they make that barn compared to how we see barns made today? And what can we learn from a barn like that in terms of what's helpful for a horse? And maybe what have we changed? Well, if you notice on that barn, they had uh, bars almost all the way around it, uh, except for the, the the one wall. And they actually had an exterior door also. So the, when the barn, when we first got it, the barn was each there was four stalls, and each stall had a door that went out to its own paddock. Um, it's kind of hard to explain, but 
the horse could go in or out. You can make him stay in if you wanted to, or else he could go in or out. And um, that had a screen on it, so you had plenty of airflow. All the heat was going up high, you know, with the high ceilings. Extra wide space um, for the stallion to move around. It was just, uh, it seemed more more natural and free. I was kind of a way to put it. Um, One thing that's unique, and this is my last question about Mount Brilliant, is that Russell Cave is on the farm. The actual cave that has the history going back to Thomas Jefferson and the duel on the farm um, later with Cassius Clay and not the one we know as Muhammad Ali, but a hundred years before that. Tell me a little bit about Russell Cave and maybe some of the mysteries that surround that. Well, the property originally was Thomas Jefferson's land, I believe. Um, And then he gave land all through Kentucky. Um, And I think at one time, the land of Kentucky might have been part of Virginia. I think <laughs> <laughs> I'll double check for you. Okay. Um, but, um, his generals in the army, he would donate, give them pieces of property in there. So general Russell, um, was given that land. Um, now the area itself had was around the cave area. It was like a natural amphitheater. So they would hold a lot of, political rallies there and they were able to bring people in and uh the way it was set up the person could speak and everyone could could hear him and then the part of the battle is was cassius clay was speaking and then there was another gentleman who samuel brown samuel brown yes yes and um it started they started getting more aggressive i think Sam Brown took his whip and struck Cassius Clay and Cassius Clay always carried a big Bowie knife and he uh, slashed his ear off. Um, It's pretty gory. He slashed his head open and the guy, Sam Brown pulled out his pistol and shot him. Now Cassius Clay carried his Bowie knife in a silver scabbard on his chest. And the uh, bullet actually hit that, saved his life. And Clay was Cassius Clay's uncle, I believe. And he represented him um, in his trial and said he was acting the fit part of any Kentucky gentleman. And he was (laughs) able to get him (laughs) which I guess shows that Kentucky gentlemen are pretty violent, I guess. <laughs> the wild, wild Midwest. I guess, yes. Yeah. How about that? And the cave itself. I've never seen that cave, the water supply in there ever run dry, even when we've had droughts. And at one time, there was a pump house set up, and that cave supplied the whole north end of Fayette County with water, uh, the pipeline system. And my father said he remembered when he was little, he would come down in uh, horse and wagons and every, all the kids and stuff would go swimming in that cave area there because it, it had quite a bit of deep water out in front of it. That's interesting. And it's a, a piece of history right there as part of the farm. 
That's exciting. Well, let's switch gears and go to Samaya Farm. You said Osama Abu Ghazali is... And before I go, let's do one thing more about laying out the paddocks and fields. Sure. Yeah. When you have a rolling hills, um, the main thing you want to do is you don't want to have a fence line at the bottom of a hill. Uh, this is pretty Im- important because um, if you have mares and foals and they go running over a hill and all of a sudden they when they pop the hill, there's a fence there and they try to stop, you know, you can run into the fence or slide into the fence. Um, you either want to start your stop, put your fence line before the hill or make sure that there's enough run out space at the bottom of a hill level ground for a horse to be able to finish its run out and stop. Um, you can kind of angle your fences somewhat to take in more hill, but, a lot of farms want to use the land and they they'll put those fence right in a terrible spot right over a hill. So I always tried to at Mount Brilliant would eliminate that. I did the same in Sumaya. We bought a piece of property and it was Creek was in the floodplain and we wasted a little bit of land, but we took, set the fences back on each side of the Creek in order um, to have it out of the floodplain. So when you do get floods, you know, half your field's not flooded. And a lot of farms will uh, let the horses drink out of the creeks. Um, I think if you're going to do that, you need to cut your banks back on each side of the of the branch of water so they can meander down to it. And uh, you're not going to have a foal that maybe slip and fall in and not be able to get out. Um, personally, you don't know what's half a mile upstream. Uh, nowadays, I noticed uh, we have a agricultural farm on the other side of ours, and uh, you know they were they were spraying um, weed killer and stuff, and it's I'm sure it's getting down into the water itself. Um, same with with uh, nitrogen that they apply. So you have to be have to be careful. I was talking to Nathan Nathan Slovis at haggards and he said you know if i had property i would take the streams out because it's just too many contaminants that can get in there um a lot of farms don't uh, i think you just uh if you know what's a, a upstream above you then maybe that's a possibility you know i was kind of wondering about that because i used to ride my venting horses into the stream and let them stand and soak their legs for 20 minutes you know yeah and around here in Kentucky, you see most of the streams fenced off, but it makes good sense when you think about the potential toxins from agriculture. That and a lot of farms, uh, they're afraid the horse. I did have a horse when I was at Keswick Stables, um, old Keswick, that a foal got down in the creek, and we happened to see him down in the creek, and he actually drowned, couldn't get out. Um, you know, you can see a branch of water and the mares will cross over and you can see the foals running back and forth trying to figure out how they're going to get over screaming for their mothers. Um, a lot of them just get used to it, but we just tried to eliminate it um, so they didn't have to worry about it. So, Sounds like a good plan. And why do you typically see trees fenced off in paddocks or pastures? Well, first of all, for some reason... Horses love to chew on the bark. Uh, they'll chew on your fences too, but they love to chew on the bark on some of those trees. And uh, they'll strip a tree of all the bark, and then they 
if you put wire around them, you'll notice they'll start chewing the root system that's sticking below the below the wire. So I always tried to put wires around the trees. Uh, it was less of a labor problem, so you didn't have to weed it around all those th- those uh, tree pins. Um, but you have to maintain it because pretty soon the horses, either the mower is going to get too close, they're going to tear that wire. You're going to have some points of wire sticking out. Uh, it, it's a lot of maintenance to keep going around and checking to make sure. And then as the trees grow, the wires get too tight. Um, so you have to keep replacing them. But if you have wires all the way down and you have a big tree and it has a big root system, they're going to chew the root underneath and they're going to be standing there pawing on the roots all day long. So I think that's why the old guys used to uh, put tree pins around them just to keep the horses from biting them and away from the root system uh, so the trees would live longer. Yeah, interesting. I actually ran into a trainer down in South Florida last winter and through my work in nutrition, I found that so many trainers down there are concerned about non-sweaters and it's a real issue in South Florida. And one said that he, when he'd get a non-sweater and they'd ship him back up to New York, the first thing that horse would do is go try to eat leaves off the trees, Really, which I found so interesting. Yes. Did he tell you why that was? Well, I don't think he ever figured it out, but he just, <laughs> and I thought, well, we need to get some scientists on that, right? And yeah. find a way to yeah. to manage this. But I thought is, there must be something in well, those trees that. I know it's pretty important in, around here in the summertime, uh, the fresh water and salt. Um, you really have to maintain that. I think that those are some of the things that, we do so automatically we forget like you, when you're out in the field, you check the water trough or you check the water and you, you, you give the horse a once over and make sure if they do wear shoes, they have them on little yeah. things like that, that are almost unspoken. Well, back in the old days, you know, they didn't have these automatic waters that would fill up on their own <clears throat> like they do now. So we have these big concrete field tanks. Uh, they were so big. They called them cattle tanks that uh, they're probably eight to 10 foot across. Um, and, you know, they would fill up with moss. So you'd have to go clean them out with a broom, clean the moss out of them. We'd actually put a handful of lime in it, which would keep algae from growing. But in the summertime, we'd take a field that was empty and we'd all swim in that. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a lot more maintenance. And then in the winter, Good gosh, they'd freeze over solid. You know, you'd have to keep a post or something in there to be able to break the ice off of them. But it's made it, it makes it a lot better nowadays with the automatic waters. The problem is, uh, I, I, when I built these bigger fields, I put two water tanks in them because I noticed mares would stand the dominant mare that was kind of like, you know, king of the field, you know queen of the field she'd stand over the water tank there and just have her head down there all day and, and these other horses you could see them standing around wanting to drink the water so if when you had those big cattle troughs you know they could go on the other side of that and be able to drink and uh i started looking at that and i said you know i'm gonna put two water tanks in here just uh so they'll be able to do that but 
So that's a a wonderful observation and basic that takes paying attention, right? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> you, just stopping and watching—it's amazing what yeah what you can see. Well, I loved falling mares, and I loved bringing. To me, that was my favorite time of the year. Once they fold and you had them out and they were running around in the spring and seeing the newborn falls. But it's also the most important time to have your blacksmith um, looking at those foals um, confirmationally. Not not just for sales, you know, but for confirmation in general to have a more sound individual. Um, you know, most foals are born, they're going to be a little knock-kneed, and that's the way it should be. But then as they start progressing, <clears throat> they start getting a toe-in effect. Um, and we get our blacksmith in there, depending on whether or not they're down on their ankles, you know, in the slack pastings when they're first born. Uh, sometimes I've even had, had them put a little trailer shoe on it to help support that so they could get more exercise. Um, but confirmation, just to, if they can go in there and rasp those folds, just a couple of hits with the rasp to toll them back out. It'd be amazing in 30 days what their front end looks like where you don't have to worry about any type of surgeries down the road where they get incorrect. Um, That's some great advice. So at what point do you have them hit them with the rasp? And kind of When they're first born, it depends on if you see something that looks pretty severe, just call your blacksmith in and go ahead and get him to evaluate with evaluate it with you. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've had him come in, you know, four days of age and just slide the rasp over him just real lightly. Because you know? they're they're already towing in a little bit, and you just kind of help them yeah. straighten. Yeah. Yep. That's some great advice. Now, I do – there's three things that I want to tell you. Well, please do. Father, I'm all ears. My father was probably the biggest influence. I thought he was probably the greatest horseman I ever met. And I've met quite a few, but, uh, you know, he went to Virginia, and he was – fairly well known in in Virginia. I think a lot of people um, respected his opinions on things. But the three things he told me in the horse business was, number one is honesty. It's a close-knit group. And anything you do good in the horse business, probably no one's going to remember. But anything you do bad in the horse business, they'll never forget. People you respect will respect you more uh, if you're honest with them and uh, they buy a good horse off of you, they'll keep coming back if they know that you're honest with them and you're not trying to hide something and pull the wool over their eyes. Um, so I, I, he told me the other thing was um, never think that you know everything um, in the horse business. Those guys who think they know it all are in big trouble because you can learn something every day. And I tell the guys here when I first came to this farm you know there's 50 different ways to do things and they're all right but there's the way that i was taught and i feel more comfortable with that because then if something goes wrong it's my fault not somebody else's because they did it the way that i that i wanted um you have to be but you also have to be open-minded and be yes. able to yes um there's new things that happen all the time and you have to learn from those um the third thing was, he told me, never think that you're too good to be do any job on a horse farm, because 
something's going to happen. You're going to be night watching. You know, the night watchman doesn't show up. Or three guys are out and you've got a show and you've got to do stalls, you know, and everything you're too good enough to do a stall. But I try to stay away from it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, those, were three, those were three things that uh, always stuck in my mind. And when I was at Mount Brilliant, we had Nero that was second in the Derby, we had Creator that won the Belmont. Um, those probably bring you the most joy because you, that, you know, you, you plan their matings, you fold them out, you raise them, and now they're successful on the racetrack. And uh, Tell me about Creator. I saw a picture of him as a chestnut, and then I saw a picture of him as a gray. Well, when he was first born, he had uh, <laughs> chestnut-looking hair to him, you know? Yeah, more than most. Yeah. You got to look around that eye and muzzle and find those, you know, those gray hairs to know uh, what his final color is going to be. Um, right. A lot of times when you... Um, when you register those things when they're young, you kind of make a misprint there, you know, so you have to look closely. But, uh, yeah, he had kind of a reddish coat. And then when he shed it out, he was he was a gray. He wasn't hard on himself in training like a heavily muscled horse could be, you know. So that's right. the one thing that I remember about him the most. He would probably be easy on himself when he was in training. Yeah, that's so important. And it's easy to fall in love with the real heavy horses, but you do have yeah. your work cut out for yeah. you, keeping them sound. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I actually had the opportunity to gallop Cara Raffaella, the dam of Bernardini. Oh, really? When I was, yeah, I galloped for Wayne Lucas and I galloped her at Del Mar, uh, I think the whole summer at Del Mar. And she was just like an elastic rubber band. I mean, she barely touched the ground. Wow. So light on her feet, but so light that... She, and she was strong. She wanted to pull you. And if you took too much hold, she'd throw that head up in your lap, yeah, you know? Yeah. So you had to just really get along with her. But it was just such a stretchy rubber band kind of feeling yeah. to. And then, of course, AP Indies were very s smooth. So you put the two of those together and you get Bernardini. Yeah. I loved AP Indy. Actually, I have a picture of Seattle Slough hanging over my mantle. I love that Slough line. See, because I'm older, so <laughs> I go all the way back to SLU, you know. <laughs> I mean, just think of all the stallions that have come from that line now, you know, with, with the Tappet and the Pulpit line and Tappet uh, especially. And they've got more young stallions that's coming up now being successful. It's just – but it all goes back to, you know, the AP Indian and the SLU. So, like I said uh, – I love that line coming down. Yeah. Who is your favorite horse of all time? Um, I would have to say American Pharaoh, just watching him and what he's, what he's done. Now, when I was at Darby Dan, it was a little current because I watched his Belmont win and it almost looked like Secretariat. He was so far out in front of everybody. So there's every horse, stallions, there's something that you remember him by. Um, but I think American Pharaoh, seeing his performance and what he did, I, I think he's pretty genuine myself. And his offspring seemed to be the same also. So He was regal. He is regal. He's, I love the way he's made. And yeah. Yeah, beautiful. He, um, 
What a special horse. I was hoping you might say like red, your pony when you were a kid or something. Like that. <laughs> I never had a pony when I was a kid. My sister did, but uh, I never rode a horse until I started work for Stephen Clark, a gentleman that at Boxwood Farm in Virginia that had uh, owned Hoist the Flag. Um, he, I took a position with him um, as an assistant and this was this was more of a layup for him. You know, he'd have horses in training. We'd break the year on us, and then he'd have horses come back off the track, and then I would have to pony him out, you know, ride on the pony. He said, can you ride a pony? I'm like, oh, yeah. I, just... <laughs> I wanted the job, you know. <laughs> There's a couple of times she took off with me a little bit. and then the... I would imagine, but <laughs> you the, survived it. And the exercise <laughs> rider is actually ponying me. He's reaching over and pulling the horse up while he's on <laughs> the thoroughbred, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's harder than it looks, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Sumaya Farm. Yeah. Sumaya, owned by uh, Osama Abu Ghazali, who you say is probably the guy that loves horses more than anyone. Tell me a little bit more about his background and and his passion for horses. Well, um, his family was uh, owns um, majority of Del Monte fresh fruit produce, um, and in Chile, um, I think there's active volcanoes there, and so the Soil there from the ash of the volcanoes is perfect for growing fruits. And I think, you know, he went there looking at that and then fell in love with the countryside. Um, was loved, loved horses and uh, started his own horse farm there. One in San Diego, Santiago and then one in the southern part of Chile. Um, so he has two farms. Um, but the and he has a lot had a lot of tremendous success down there with racehorses. Um but he started importing stallions from the States down to try to improve his herd. Um and I think um California Chrome stood down there for two years. He was crazy about California Chrome. He really loved him. Um I saw photos of that, yeah. and I read that the Chromies were quite upset, and he knew that he better take good care of that stallion and yeah. get him back in one piece. Yeah, that's correct. Well, he did. <laughs> no, he was like I said, he he was he's crazy about him. He'll come here. Well, that's part of the reason he bought a horse farm here, you know, because he would come to see his horses that he had boarded here, you know, that he had purchased brood mares and he kept them boarded at certain farms, and he'd come in and he would like only be spend five minutes with him because they parade him up and he'd look at all of them. And then they'd go back in their stalls or whatever. And he's like, I want to spend time with him. So he bought the uh, Sumaya farm here in Paris. And, uh, the first time he came, he's out walking in the field with him. I, I'm, these are like for hours, you know, and he came and he told me, he says, this foal, he's a terrorist. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> He said he snuck up behind me and he jumped and put his feet over top of my back. <laughs> and I said, Mr. Avogadro, you have to be careful. You know, they're playing around. Oh, no, I love it. I love it. And he takes apples out and he feeds the horses. And I said, please, if you're going to go out in the fields with these yearlings, 
let me go with you. Let somebody go with you because I was afraid he'd, he'd get hurt. But um, long walks in the evenings, you know, just going around the farm. And that's that's what he loves, you know, being with the horses and the passion. And he wants to make sure you take care of them right, you know. So that's his priority. The best hay, best feed we can get. And uh, make sure that they're, the men take care of them. You two have something um, very strong in common. You're both third generation horsemen. For you at this stage of your career, how important is it to work for a guy like Osama that loves horses this much and wants to spare no expense to see them achieve their best? Well, when I retired from Mount Brilliant, I said, you know, I'm not ready to just give up the horse business. And um, I went to Chris Baker, who I'd known for years from Virginia. Um, and he says, Hey, I, I'm dispersing a lot of our mares. We're, we're consolidating all of our horses back on our main farm and reducing our boarding. Um, at three chimneys. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you come and help me prep these mares for the sale? Weanlands and mares. I said, sure. I, that's, I'm not doing anything. That'd be great. And then he, told me there's an ad in the thoroughbred daily news about a, a farm manager. He said, you know, are you, you sure you don't want to try for something like that again? And, uh, and I said, well, it's, it's only like 15, 16 mares and, you know, they race everything. I said, that'd be a piece of cake. So I applied and, uh, I interviewed with Mr. Abbott Ghazali and, you know, at my age, I thought that would be a hindrance. Um, and there's two things that he told me. He said, I can look in your eyes and see that you're a kind man. Yes. And secondly, the experience that you have, your age is not a f- disappointment to me. The experience that you have with your age is what I want. Because um, a lot of these young guys don't have the experience. They haven't seen what you've seen. So, How old are you, Jody? I'm, I just turned 69, as a matter of fact. Yeah. So still plugging along. That's awesome. You're just getting started. I know in your picture, you probably are surprised because I know I don't look 69 at all, do I? You look about <laughs> 50, 59, maybe. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, thank you. No, that's young. And I think that... Um, that's one of the things I'm trying to bring forward on this show is respect for experience. And your experience is, is essential really to, to be brought forth in a situation like you're in where you can train the next generation. Because if all this information that you've gathered through three generations of your family gets lost, then what are we left with? We, we need you in the field. We need you out there helping sort of groom and cultivate the next generation of horsemen. You know, I really do think that's important. When I first started Mount Brilliant, you know, I had a lot of the Hispanic laborers. And uh, first of all, I told him, I said, it's important for you to learn English because I don't know that much Spanish. So the person who learns English is going to be my primary because I need for them to be able to tell everyone else what, what to do. Uh, and if if you go look for another job somewhere else, English is going to be so beneficial to you. Um, and it's the same reason, you know, you'll progress further by being able to, um, communicate with your employer. Um, but 
a lot of the guys I hired in were young and they weren't, you know, they worked with horses, but not that much. So it was a teaching process. And, um, man, I, those guys haven't left and, uh, they, they learned so much and he has such a great crew there now at Mount Brilliant. And, um, the best guy I brought in was uh, Jesus Rivera. Now he already had experience, but what a guy to for yearly manager. Um, he and I would, you know, we tweak things, but uh, he could be managing a farm somewhere on his own. He's that he's that good. But that's the that's the important thing is to continually teach. And the problem nowadays with labor, like you say, a lot of them are just work for the paycheck. But the ones that want to learn, I mean, you can teach them so much and they will actually help our business down the long run because you have experienced people. There are organizations now that have, you know, classes and stuff, but most of the time when those kids come out of there, they're expecting a, a higher entry-level position. You know what I mean? Um, I want to ask you this, being kind of old school like you are. Um, how much is the vet telling you and how much are you telling the vet? And you make your own poultice to this day. Am I right? I do a lot of poultice work. Yeah. Myself. Um, you know, and it's funny because back in the old days, I hate to keep saying that, but you know, my dad told me how to put on a poultice using an old burlap feed bag, you know, the gunny sacks. Uh-huh. You'd actually, cause we didn't have the vet wraps and you know, you couldn't actually, it was hard to keep flannel wrap on a foot. So we would make up uh, poultry with bran, uh, little wintergreen, um, Epsom salts, and iodine. And uh, you'd heat that and get it hot with some water. And then you'd apply it to the bottom of the foot and put the cotton on. But we would make a boot out of these uh, burlap bags. Uh, and you would apply it on and cut slits in it and take the two long pieces that you had left on the bag and use those for strings and tie it on the foot overnight. Um, now it's much easier with the vet wrap and elasticon and stuff like that. You can, they will adhere to it, but those were the best poultices in my eye. You know, a lot of that, a lot of them will use animal intex, which is like a little, sheet that already has the medicine in it and you just cut it off and, it, and apply it over where you think your abscess is going to be but um, those it's surprising me because the podiatrist I had come out uh, and I couldn't get this abscess to pop um, so I wanted him to dig around in it a little bit and he actually put a brand poultice on it <laughs> <laughs> everything seems to have uh circle right back around like it was in the old days. And there's a lot of that that, that happens in, in the horse business. Everything that became out of date and old-fashioned eventually circles back around, I think. I like the sound of that. Yeah. <laughs> I think we could have some fun with that. Yeah. Well, it's sure been a pleasure to have you join me today on the show. And uh, I appreciate your time. Um, oh, I, I I'm I'm sorry that I go off on little tangents because I I start thinking of things and then I kind of ramble. But uh, you know, my grandfather's nickname was Wendy, and uh, I think I picked up a little of that from him. <laughs> well, just keep passing down that good knowledge to your employees and keep oh, okay. training up the next generation for on behalf of 
all of us who love horses and on behalf of the horses themselves. Oh, well, thanks. You know, you can't believe how much I appreciate you having me on here. I don't, I'm not sure why, but uh, you have me on here, but uh, I do think it's quite an honor and I am honored and humbled uh, by even being asked to be on here. So thank you. Thanks for everything you do and uh, stay in touch. All right. Okay. Bye, Jody. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Racehorses Etc. Please go to carolynconley.com and become a Racehorses Insider. We'll keep you up to date with exclusive content and more. That's it for now. Remember, until we meet again, enjoy the horses.